Um, now, before I have you open up to the passage of Scripture, I, I wanted to uh, share with you, we're supposed to be, this morning, we're supposed to be in Daniel 7. We're not going to be in Daniel 7. Uh, we're going to start Daniel 7 when I get back from Israel. I'm going to be gone two Sundays, and when I get back, we're going to begin Daniel 7. Because from Daniel 7 on, it's, it's intense, prophetic uh, Scripture, and it's going to require a lot of uh, study, um, and we're going to have to be prepared for it. So... Uh, when I was coming back from Baton Rouge, we were in Baton Rouge um, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Yesterday, we got in after midnight, gosh, approaching almost 1 o'clock in the morning. We got in from Baton Rouge. I went with Pastor Brett, Pastor Tony, Pastor John, uh, and John Mink, and Brett, and Tony, and myself. Uh, we went there for an event called The Response, and Governor Bobby Jindal, the governor of Louisiana, uh, was calling for a prayer event, a Nation in Crisis. And I loved his line. He said... Um, America didn't create religious liberty. Religious liberty created America. Amen. And I was, I was really blown away by that. And at this event, it was at the uh, Pete Maravich Center on LSU campus. And there were no concession sales, no big name bands, no uh, keynote speakers. It was nothing but people worshiping and praying uh, and crying out to God. But prior to the event, there was an organization called the American Family Association that wanted to make this an issue about homosexual marriage and homosexuality and, and on and on and on because they could get some traction on their radio program. And as a result, it created a firestorm so that, and it, and it had nothing to do with any of that. It was a bunch of people getting together to pray and worship God. That was it. Because AFA had made it something that it wasn't, a, a slew of protesters showed up outside. So there was uh, probably 12,000 people inside and there's probably a couple hundred outside and then the, our Catholic brothers and sisters were out there with banners about abortion. And then they were doing the Lord's Prayer. And then these protesters, they would say, Our Father who art in heaven. And they would all scream, No! Hallowed be thy name. No! And it was this battle going on outside. And on the inside, people were worshiping. And I, I, it was one of those things where I was just taking it all in. And God had spoken to me through this passage of Scripture we're about to read and, and the application of it. But before we get into it, one more thing I wanted to add. Um, my wife couldn't go with me on this trip. She usually travels with me. She'll be going with me to Israel, but she couldn't go on this trip because my son Daniel needed surgery. Nothing serious. Um, but he needed surgery, and my wife had to be with him. So you, you, when you travel with your spouse, it's, it's a really cool thing because you're, you're, you're with your best friend. Uh, you're encouraged while you're traveling. You know, you, you face the issues together. You're able to work through stuff. Uh, you know, it's just, it, there's, there's strength in it. But there's also a liability that you travel a little slower than you like to travel. My, my wife, um, you know, she, she did, well, I'm telling you the truth, you know, I, it's just the way it is. And, um, and so my wife wasn't coming on this trip, so I thought, man, it's a bummer. I'm not going to get to be with her. I guess the, the positive note in it is that I'll travel faster. But little did I know that Pastor Brett would take my wife's place. I was thinking, you know, Pastor Tony is 12 years older than me, you know. He'd be like, hey, I'll be there in a little bit. We're coming, you know. I thought Tony would be the guy, but no, it's Brett. Brett. We get off the plane. We're like, hey, let's go. Let's go get the... And I want to tell you why he made us late all the time. He didn't make us late, why he, why he was always last. I was with John Mink. John's young. He's ready to roll. He's got his backpack. He doesn't check any luggage, you know. And, 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 and here's why. We get on the plane from LAX to New Orleans... 
And I've got a, a window seat, and I don't really like window seats. I usually get them for my wife. She likes windows because she leans up against it. I like aisles. And I've got a window seat, and we're coming in, and I know these guys are in the back. And I know Tony's got an aisle seat, so I switch with Tony. I give him the window seat. And I come to find out that Tony's seat is all the way in the back, the last one right by the bathrooms. And next to him, in the middle seat, is Brett. And Brett is hugantic. And he's sitting in this middle seat, and he's just, his shoulders are huge, and they're just pouring out. And I'm leaned over here, and I just, I got to watch you out, because a drink cart will take your knees out. And over to the left, on the, on the window, is a Muslim woman. And Brett sits down, and he goes, hi, I'm Brett, what's your name? Oh, Rabina, nice to meet you, Rabina. And uh, what are you reading there? Oh, that's so good. And he begins to witness to her. And the Bible's open, and they're going through the scriptures, and she's going through the scriptures, and he's just laying out there, and she's, and I'm, I'm like, Brett, I want to sleep, man. What are you doing? <laughs> and I actually, I actually fall asleep for a bit, because I'm tired. I was up late the night before, and I fall asleep for a bit. When I wake up, I notice that Brett knows every one of the flight attendants' names. He knows everybody's name in the area. He's like orchestrating a community event. Why? Why? And oh, good. Oh, and he's helping everybody with their luggage and all this other stuff, and and I'm looking over at, at John Mink, and John's like, this is, this is crazy. I'm convicted by it. And Brett is just redeeming the time, and he's pouring his life into this woman. He's witnessing to everybody. He even witnessed to, the, to these two uh, men from Poland on the flight back, and he's talking. And we're all just exhausted. He's still pouring it on. We're, anyone we're with, he, the, the waitress, do, do you know Jesus? Yeah, everybody. It's on and on and on. And... Uh, and, and we get off the flight, and I'm like, let's go, and he's not here. And I, I'm frustrated. I'm like, he's taking the place of my wife. And, I, and I, Brett comes out, and he's got a bag on one shoulder, and he's pushing a woman's wheelchair with the other. He's like <laughs> ministering to everybody. I can't get angry at him. And God used him to pick the passage because I learned quite a bit on this trip. John Mink and I left Maravich State or Arena to go out and mingle amongst all the protesters and spend time with them. And actually, their grievances were legitimate. And they were upset, and they were reading documents written by American Family Association, going down and reading them and responding to the things and the statements and the ugliness of their statements. And their statements were ugly too, but it, it contrasted. I mean, just look at them both. And we're watching this and we're seeing the, the intensity over here with the Catholics and, the, and, and there was a godlessness about it and it was an eclectic gathering and it was sad. And then you go back in and there's a peace in the, in the room and an arena. And I have to tell you something about the American Family Association. None of them were in the arena. They didn't show up that day to worship. And, and I, I, I was burdened because as I looked at it, I, I saw this, it was almost like a, a spirit of distress a spirit of tension that was resonating everywhere that was supposed to be a day of worship and praise. There was a spirit of tension, heaviness, spiritual warfare, just intense. And then as I opened up Daniel 7, I started to read that. I was like, oh man. And we're going to take a two-week break? I don't know. And then the more I read Daniel 7, I got through verse 15. It's so intense, this dream that Daniel's having that I, I you know... If, if somebody came to me with a dream like that, I'd be like, did you take acid? <laughs> Serious, it was, it's that bizarre. And then when it talks about the interpretation of the dream, you're thinking, oh, now it's going to get even, it's even heavier. Now, there's answers to it. You've got to dig. It's not a real simple text. And it's a prophetic text that deals with the situation of our time. 
And I, I was thinking, Lord, what do you want to prepare us for? Because as we undertake the study of the book of Daniel, there's going to be a sense of, 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 of prophetic tension that's going to come over this body. You're going to see the times in which we live. And so I figured, okay, Lord, would you prepare us for the next chapters of Daniel? And so God gave me this verse out of 1 Corinthians 7. The reason why it's in 1 Corinthians 7 is because <clears throat> there is, a, there is a, a word that's translated, and this word is in the perfect paraphrastic passive indicative. It's a Greek word. And it's in the perfect paraphrastic passive indicative tense. And what that means is, I have no idea. What it means is this, it's only located twice in the Bible. And the reason why it's only located twice is because God wants to bring emphasis to it to all of us today. And this will serve to prepare us for the study of Daniel. So with that being said, let's stand for 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, one more thing before I begin reading. It's going to sound a little weird. In context, Paul is preparing the church at Corinth for what is going to be a, a, a season of tension. And he's equipping them for what is ahead. And he's going to give them some advice on their relationships, on how to prepare for the tension awaiting them. It's his opinion, and he's going to lay it out there. Um... His opinion in a dollar will get you a cup of coffee. But he's sharing with the church. That was a joke. There, he, one person got it. There's, he's sharing with the church. He's sharing with the church that this will help them in this season awaiting them. We're going to pick up at verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Verse 26. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. Everyone say present distress. That it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Then don't seek to be loosed from her. Are you loosed from a wife? Then do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. Nevertheless, such will have troubles in the flesh. And I want to spare you that in these coming times, he says. Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. Please say the time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. It goes on to describe that doesn't mean men, you know, forget your wives or treat them poorly. The picture is the time is short. The time is short. The time is short. This, this phrase, the time is short, is the one where I said you had the perfect perifractive passive indicative tense. And it's found in one other place, and we'll visit that in a moment. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. We pray that you guide and direct us and fill us with your spirit and lead us into all truth. I pray, Lord, as we see the difference between Kairos and Kronos, this season that we're about to step into, and the time in which we live, I pray that all of us, our eyes would be opened, that we would have a sense of the prophetic tension that is in the air, that we would be ready for when you come to wrap it up, that we would know the time and we'd be prepared. I pray, God, you'd speak and minister according to your riches in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated.
The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. It's called an epistle. The word epistle means letter. It was a letter to the church. It'd be like somebody writing us a letter that we'd read to the church to educate the church. It was a letter written by Paul to the church. Paul had planted the church. Paul had poured his life into the church. He wrote 1 Corinthians, which was an epistle, and he wrote 2 Corinthians, which was an epistle. He wrote a number of epistles. They're called the Pauline epistles. And um, what's interesting about 1 Corinthians 7 is five years earlier, Paul wrote... 1 Thessalonians, and four years earlier than, than this passage, he wrote 2 Thessalonians. There's a point, and there's a reason why I'm saying that. Paul is sharing with the church at Corinth, and he's writing this, and in context, what he's saying is, you need to be prepared to shore up your life and make choices that are going to prepare you for this season, this time, in which it is going to be with heavy distress. When Paul wrote this, historically speaking, Corinth was going through a famine. It was the third famine. In addition, Corinth had experienced multiple earthquakes. And with the earthquakes and the famine, Jesus said in the end times, there will be famines and earthquakes, right? This church was convinced that this was the end. They were equipped in their full capacity in this regard. And Paul was even expecting the soon return of Christ. Paul had written five years earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he wrote, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Paul was expecting that in any moment he was going to be with the Lord, whether he'd be raptured, and some of you disagree with the rapture concept, whether Paul meant that or not, we can debate it until we're blue in the face. One thing I can discern from it and declare is that the apostle Paul was ready to meet the Lord that day, that moment when he was writing it. That's without exception. The apostle Paul also said, not only was that his mindset, but he said, with this concept that we are going to be caught up together with the Lord alive, we who are alive, what he's saying is spiritually alive, we've been born again. Those of us who, who have eternal life, our, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, our, our, our lives have been put in the hands of the Father. We are alive. We'll be caught up together with him. And what I want you to do with that concept, with that understanding, he says, I want you to comfort one another with this idea. I want you to let everybody know that this season that we're in with the protesters out front and with, with the world going to hell in a handbag and Arab Christians being massacred by ISIS and, and nuclear proliferation <laughs> in North Korea and, and Russia coming into the Ukraine and, and, and battles raging all over the world and Ebola viruses and all these things. This is, there's, there's present distress. There's tension right now. There's tension. He says, I want you to know something. The time is short. You need to comfort one another with these words, but you need to be prepared. You need to understand the times. When we get into Daniel, you need to understand what he's going to be speaking. I don't know what your eschatology, your end time view is. We're going to approach Daniel from, from a Calvary Chapel perspective of eschatology. I don't seek to offend. Some of you may agree or disagree with it, but what I will tell you is this. As we step into the book of Daniel, know this. I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana with Dr. Bruce Walkie, who is the foremost 
expositor of scripture, uh, a, a theologian par excellence. I mean, he is renowned in the world of Christendom. Renowned. Here he is in his 80s, and he is speaking for two one-hour segments to pastors, and the stuff he's digging up is amazing. And he is giving a foundation for pastors for, the, for their call to political involvement as we're educating a room full of pastors. I spoke for 15 minutes. This man spoke for two hours. I could barely get a sentence out that had anything of significance for two hours. It was endless significance. But the man's position on Israel is, is he's not a dispensationalist. He doesn't believe that Israel is going to be in the end times. He doesn't believe that it blessed as a nation. He doesn't believe that the Abrahamic covenant covers Israel. And almost like a replacement theology. He believes the church took that place and he has no prophetic love for Israel. Calvary chapels by history do. Now, regardless of what your position is, I know this much. I'm going to Israel, and I'm going to be there for two Sundays. I'll be gone two weeks. You may think that Israel's in the end times. You may not. You may be a replacement theologian. You may not be. But I do know this. I know that it's the only representative form of government in the Middle East. They may not be perfect, but they're doing their best. And, and when I head over there, this is the part that floors me. We look at, at Calvary Chapel's end time scenario and the way we look at it, and we, we believe in Gog and Magog, we believe Russia's going to come down, and we believe that there's going to... I mean, we have these views of the end times and in, in, in the way we look at it, and, and some of you are just dismissing it. Russia's not going to invade you know, Israel, they're not going to do that. Well, wait a minute, 60%, 60% of Russia's standing army is Muslim. And the largest, the largest producer and exporter of natural gas in the world is Russia. And Israel just found 6.3 trillion cubic feet of natural gas in their northern ocean. In their borders. You go, wow, that's a lot. Well, they just also discovered 9 trillion cubic feet of natural gas in the central region. And where there's natural gas, there's also oil. And now they're in competition. All I know is socioeconomically speaking, there's tension. You just created tension. I don't care what your end time view is. There's tension. How are you going to process that? How are you going to be ready? And the other thing is, too, we, we want to contrast two terms. One is kairos and the other is chronos. Chronos in the Greek is time. Right? Just Time. You have a chronos, you have a chronographer, you have, you, uh, you have a watch on your, on your wrist or on your phone. You look in the back there, you see what time it is. Time keeps ticking, it keeps moving. For time to exist, there's a beginning and an end. Time. Time. Time will end for you when you die. It's appointed once for man to die, then judgment. Then eternity begins. Eternity in heaven or eternity in hell, but it begins and it never ends. God has given us time so that we can reconcile, be reconnected, relink, religion, relink to God. We're on this earth to be reconciled to God. That makes it a kairos moment. Kairos is a season. Kronos is time. Kairos is a season. Kairos you find in Ecclesiastes 3. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to live, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to harvest. Kairos is a season. We currently are in a prophetic season. As a church, we are currently in a season awaiting the Lord's return. Kairos is this idea that God is coming back and he is going to separate the sheep from the goats. 
Whatever your view of the end time is, we do know this, that God is getting ready to make an account. And Kairos is a season. You're on this earth and you're here for this moment. Time keeps tick- ticking. People have gone before us and people go after us. And you're going to be on this earth and you're going to be like sand on a seashore. And you can move around and try to build a little kingdom, but the wind will blow it away and nobody will even know you were here. Time, chronos, keeps ticking. But you're given a kairos, a moment, to make a difference in eternity. To make a difference in eternity. And this kairos moment, the apostle Paul's saying, look, there's a present distress right now. And he says, the kairos, the time is short. This, this, This perfect paraphrastic passive indicative phrase in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, is also found, and this is the weirdest place, it's the only other place in the Bible where it's found, Acts chapter 5. The story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's verses 5 and 6, if you want to take a note, I'll read it to you. It just says, then Ananias, hearing these words, Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit, so did his wife, and they both died of a heart attack. God killed them. I'll tell you what, that's, that's not a way to grow a church. And yet the Bible says that God multiplied to their numbers daily because the church was committed to truthfulness and honesty and transparency and prayer. The church today is filled with liars, deceivers, posers. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last, and so great fear came upon all those who feared these things, or heard these things, excuse me. And then this is where... This is where the phrase comes from. It says, And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. It says, And the young men arose, wrapped him up. Wrapped him up is the same perfect, paraphrastic, passive, indicative statement as you find in 1 Corinthians 7, 29. And there it says, Time is short. Here it says they wrapped him up. Hey? Hey? I'll explain. My dad, my dad would, we got to go. Let's wrap it up. Time to go. Wrap it up. Okay. Okay, dad. Okay. Okay. Wrap it up. He'd always say that. Wrap it up. What are, we, are we giving gifts? Is it gift time? No, we're leaving. Wrap it up. Wrap what up? I, I don't know. What do I, what do I wrap? I it's time to go. What do you mean wrap it up? What he was saying is, Time here is done. Time to go. Wrap it up. It comes from the scripture here. It comes from from Acts 5. Wrap it up. It comes from 1 Corinthians 7. This idea is time is short. We've got to go. And the picture with with Ananias is is, they were wrapping him up. He's done. Time's over for him. It's over. And what Paul is saying to the church, he says, if you have this mindset and you can grasp this sense of of prophetic tension that's in the earth right now. 6.3 trillion cubic feet of natural gas and 9 trillion cubic feet and Russia amassing and and ISIS amassing and nuclear weaponry all over the world and and, and you're starting to look at it through the lens of scripture and you're looking at it through the book of Daniel. What is it going to do for you? And Paul says, I want you to take action to prepare yourself to be effective in that season of life. Take action to be effective. First thing he says is, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I, I give you judgment as one who's worthy. He's saying, I, I, I got some advice for you. I have some advice for you. He says, it's good for a man to remain as he is. 
If you're married, stay with your wife. But if you're loose from your wife, don't seek to get another wife. Because you're going to be going through the airport waiting for her. And the wife could say the same thing of the husband. But the idea is, it's easier to travel alone. And if something happened, my biggest concern is my wife and my kids. I'm not going to... Listen, if you have an issue and you need to meet with me and my wife needs my time, guess who's not going to get my time? You. That may offend you, but the reality is, if I'm not taking care of my wife and my kids, what kind of counsel could I possibly give you? Well, I, I, but I deserve your time. No, you don't. No. <laughs> you don't own me. I pay tithes. I give tithes. To... Good for you. Good for you. That doesn't mean everybody here is my boss. I have one boss. It's the Lord. Trust me, he's way better at doing it than you are. But the picture is this. The picture is we concern ourselves with our family. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, in this present distress and what we're facing with the famines, it's hard to feed a whole family. You can travel light. You can get through the airport. You can go where you need to go. I got news for you. If Brett were sitting with Susie, he probably still would witness, but he'd be very concerned with his wife's welfare. If Susie wasn't feeling well, he would spend his time with his wife as opposed to ministering to the Muslim woman or pushing somebody's wheelchair, carrying somebody's bag. He probably does that for Susie as I try to do it for Michelle. And what Paul's saying is, look, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you've been loose from your wife, don't try to seek another one. If you have a wife, that is your primary ministry. No ministry takes precedent over your ministry to your spouse on this earth. Other than your relationship with the Lord, nothing takes precedent over it. Men come to me, you know, my wife doesn't get there, and I, don't, I really want to be in the ministry, I want to serve, and she doesn't. I go, wait a minute. I don't need you in the ministry until you have figured out the ministry to your wife. You're worthless in the ministry until you're effective in the ministry to your wife. I look for men who know how to serve their wives and minister to their wives. I look for wives who are given to hospitality and serve their husbands. I've met guys who are called to the ministry and they're really good preachers and they're good at all kinds of stuff and their wives aren't given to the gift of hospitality and there isn't a unity and something's disconnected and I'm like, no. And some of you are, well, I married the wrong person. I, 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 I don't... Apostle Paul says, don't seek to be loosed from them. Press in. He says, he says, but even if you do marry, you haven't sinned. It's not a sin to be married, to long to want to be with somebody. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh. He's just saying it's going to be harder in these stressful prophetic times. And in this distressful time, it's going to be harder to be with your wife and your kids and to help them. And, and I, I just want to talk to the single folks in the room, especially the ones that are maybe older that come to Sunday nights looking for a wife or a husband. Because, you know, the younger people come and I'm just checking it out, scanning the area and just, just checking it out. That's all I'm doing. I'm just checking it out. I like this church because there's a lot of single people. That's why I'm here. Go somewhere else. Serious. You are gifted for the mission field as a single person. I'm not saying that, that God has blessed you with the gift of singleness. I'm sure you want to be married. But what I'm saying is in the process, don't look for a wife or don't look for a husband. Just prepare yourself in this season where time is short to serve with reckless abandon the Lord. I, we, I will never send a family on the mission field ever again. Ever again. I've learned my, I've learned my failure. You send a husband and wife and kids, it's expensive 
And, and the issues that you deal with and the fallout from it is overwhelming. From now on, I'm going to, I'm going to either support indigenous missionaries or we're sending single people. And, and if you're committed, and I, I'm not looking for single people who want to go to a foreign country to find a spouse. That's so irritating. And you talk to our missionaries overseas, they're like, yeah, we had another, a couple other come in and they, they, they get in there, they just start scanning the area. The Apostle Paul saying, time is short. Get the right perspective. Put your heart into it. And this idea is time is short, it's time to wrap it up. I, I, would, I would also add this idea. We're supposed to know the times. We're supposed to be aware of the times. When you see Christmas decorations for sale in a store, that means Thanksgiving is soon. <laughs> right? And in some cases, somebody in the last service says, no, it means Halloween's really soon. Right? We're going to go through Daniel 7 in the, in the following chapters, and you're going to realize that God's return is soon. What does that do for you? How does that move you? As I walked through the crowds of, of the protesters, my heart was broken. As I saw them read writings from the American Family Association, attacks on them as people, and them responding to us and their observations of us, and seeing the, the disconnect between groups that were less than 100 yards apart that could have been ministered. These folks could have come out and ministered, but they were segregated because of writings of people that didn't even attend the event. Know the times. Live in such a way as that you're ready to meet your maker and you understand the kairos, that this is your moment. That God has appointed you for such a kairos as this, as such a time as this. Don't be lazy. Don't be apathetic. Don't be like me on the airplane while Brett is ministering to somebody. I want to sleep. That's not the kairos. Be burdened by the lost. Have a love for them. Pour your heart into them. Redeeming the time is not sitting down writing visceral emails that you send to people to divide the nation. It means you walk amongst them. You step into the center. You hear the story. You do your best to have your heart broken. And you pray. You seek God. You ask him for wisdom. You navigate to the best of your ability. I want to close with this idea of the difference between Kronos and Kairos. Because this will help us in our study. Kronos is just time. I said that earlier. It's just time. But Kairos is a moment in time. It's a season. You see, Kronos began in the Garden of Eden. Time began in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve and the tree of life and the knowledge of good and evil. And we were created to live forever. We were created in his image. He's eternal in the heavens. And in being created to live forever... God said, of any tree in the garden, you may freely eat, but of this tree, do not eat, for eating of it, you will surely die. 
This is your opportunity in a world of choice to exit my presence. And eating of that tree, you will know good and evil. And it was interesting that Eve ate of the apple because she wanted to know good and evil. Only God knew of good and evil. And Eve wanted to be like God in that sense, just like Satan who had beguiled her. And through his words, he led her into death. The only way to know good and evil was to partake of that apple. And by his words, he beguiled her into death. Adam wasn't there to protect her. He was supposed to be her covering and to guard. And not only did he not guard and protect her, but that when she extended the apple to him, he of his own free will ate of the apple himself to know good and evil. And they got to know good and evil, but Kronos began and death entered. Because for time to exist, there needs to be a beginning and an end. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden so they wouldn't be sealed in their perdition, damned for all eternity. And they were given a moment in time to reconcile, a kairos, to reconcile to God and be redeemed. To have their sins forgiven, their rebellion, their disobedience to God. The wages of sin is death, the penalty is death. And what happened is when they exited the Garden of Eden, man was plagued with a thing that we have just, just found detestable through, throughout all of history. It's the one thing that we hate. It's the one thing we, we want to get rid of. It's the one thing we wish we didn't have to deal with. We hate it. It's our mortality. Ted Williams, a baseball player, cut his head off so he could live forever. Someday they're going to come back and unfreeze it. It ain't going to happen. Mortality entered the world. Death. We're all going to die. It doesn't matter what you do or whistle by the graveyard. You're going to die. Kronos is ticking. And we hated our mortality. And we gave up our immortality so that we could be like God, knowing good and evil. And the penalty for that was mortality. And Kronos began. And the clock is ticking, and every day you're dying. And you can whistle, and you can deny it, and you can excuse it, and you can do whatever you want, but you know it's coming. You know it's coming. It's coming. For those of us who are a little older, I'm 50. Some of the older folks are going, you don't know old. And some of the younger folks are going, man, he's old. I'm like right where I need to be. Because I'm looking at Tony, who's 62, and I'm 50. And I saw him walking through the airport and trying to navigate things. And he's giving it his best shot. But you know he's aching and hurting. And, and Marty's probably looking at Tony going, you don't know pain. But I know this much. When that plane came into the New Orleans airport in the middle of a storm and it was shaking, we were being shot this way and that way, and the whole plane was shaking and the flight attendants were all over and it was gnarly. And Brett and I are in the back going, and the Muslim woman is over there going, because her chronos was ticking. She had no kairos. For her, this was a moment where she was going to meet a capricious God. She'd have to give an accounting to a God that she had to you sage. He wasn't benevolent, he wasn't graceful, and he wasn't kind, and he wasn't merciful. And Brett and I are in the midst of joy in a Kairos moment 
We're not worried about Kronos ending because our clock stopped a long time ago. The Bible says, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you've been placed in the Father's hand. No man can remove. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He, I have given you the Son that whoever has a Son has life, and he who does not have the Son does not have life. I've told you this so that you may know that you have eternal life. No chronos. The clock's over. We're eternal. Some of you don't have that. Your clock's still ticking. The Muslim woman on the window, she was scared because chronos was about to end for her. She'd not had a Kairos moment of salvation. You see, when Adam and Eve gave up their immortality for mortality because they wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil, they got to know good and evil. But here's what happened. And here's how God stopped time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his only son. What that means is God left eternity for earth. And you know what he took on? He took on the thing we despise the most, the thing we don't want, the thing we want to get rid of. He took on mortality. Emmanuel, God with us, he took on the form of a man whose heart would beat and chronos would affect And he died on a cross, bloodied and beaten to stop the clock for all of us who would believe in him. Because when he died, there was no sin upon him and death couldn't hold him. And he shut the clock down and Kronos ended. He took on mortality so that we could have immortality back. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now this is the final kicker. This is the final kicker. And this blows my mind. We rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. We took on his character traits to know good and evil. And we still all know good and evil, don't we? I mean, we got it, didn't we? Does everybody know what good and evil is now? Anyone have any questions? Everybody experienced evil. We got in our fill of it. We're kind of sick of it. And the things that we want to do, we want good. Those things we want to do, we don't do. Those things we don't want to do, those we do. I mean, we were screwed up. That's the Apostle Paul, by the way. He wrote that. So we know good and evil, don't we? So we got to keep a knowledge of good and evil. We're the ones who rebelled against God. We violated his precepts. And what did he do? He let us keep the thing that we stole to destroy our life. He took on the thing we didn't want, which was our mortality. He died so that we could have our immortality back and our knowledge of good and evil. Let me me put it into perspective. You know King David? Remember King David killed Goliath? King David, do you remember Bathsheba? He was up on the palace walking around when all the kings go out to war. He stayed back. He's walking out and she's taking a shower. He's like... He looks again, looks again, he takes it all in, he brings her in, and, and, you know, the adulterous relationship occurs. And then she's with child, and her husband, Uriah the Hittites, he's out fighting the war. So David brings back Uriah, and he tells him you need to sleep with your wife, and because back then they didn't have pregnancy tests and, you know, DNA. And Uriah knows something's up, because he's heard the whispering in the palace, and he doesn't do it. So David puts a hit on him, kills him, 
in the front lines of the battle. And then he marries Bathsheba. Bathsheba gives birth to the child of that adulterous relationship. The child dies as a result of David's actions. So the child dies, Uriah dies, all because of what David did. But guess who got to keep Bathsheba as his wife? David. What? And he's a man after God's own heart? Do you see that? It, it appears to be injustice, but it's what we call mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We got the knowledge of good and evil and we still get immortality because God stops the chronos and that is the picture that God is portraying. Today is a day of salvation. This is the kairos moment of your life. You can stop the clock right now. You could prepare for this tension that awaits in this prophetic utterance that we're going to see in Daniel, and you don't have to be afraid. It doesn't matter if I get the interpretation right or not. What I can tell you right now is your name can be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and the chronos, the clock, can stop, and you will have eternal life. This is at Kairos moment. It's time to wrap it up. Time is short. It's appointed once for man to die. That plane could have gone down. I was ready. Christians don't die. The apostle Paul said it. He said, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain and be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul was ready for Kairos. Are you? Because it's time to wrap it up. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved to the glory of the Father. He left eternity to step into time. He took on mortality to save you and give you immortality. He's come to forgive you of your sins which separate you from the Father so that you can be cleansed of all unrighteousness and spend eternity with God. God's come to set you free and to give you life and life more abundant. This is that Kairos moment. This is that season. It's a season of salvation right now. I want to pave the way because when we undertake Daniel, it can either be the most frightening book you've ever read or it can be the most exciting book we'll ever engage in. And that depends on where you sit in time. Amen? Amen. What I'm going to do, for those of you unfamiliar with this, is in a moment I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. And while we're doing that, I'm going to give you an invitation to receive Christ as your Savior. It's, it's an act of faith. For example, if somebody comes to give you a gift... And that's what salvation is. It's a gift from God. If someone comes to give you a gift, you can only receive that gift by reaching out and taking it, right? Otherwise, they're just sitting holding a package that you don't want. It's an act of faith to receive that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to extend to you an opportunity to exercise your faith. It's real simple. I'm going to say if you want to receive the gift of salvation as Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. That's it. I'm not going to parade you around. I'm not going to do a dance. I'm not going to write you, nothing. But today's the day of salvation. This is an act of faith. Simple for you, but it wasn't for Jesus. He made it so it's accessible. That's the power of mercy, and that's the power of grace. You get your cake, and you get to eat it too. That's a good God, amen? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, and I ask that everybody do this. This is... This is, again, this is a Kairos moment. 
This is a moment in time. This is a, this is a time of salvation. This is the miracle of God moving in the hearts of his people that he created. You've been created in the image of God to live forever. Not in, not in damnation, but in heaven. Not separated from God, but in fellowship with God. Your sin separates you, and today God is going to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross is going to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He's going to wipe away every stain. He's going to take away your mortality and replace it with immortality. He's going to give you a new body when you fall asleep and awaken in his image. He's going to give you a new body eternal in the heavens. But he says you must believe. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So the way we're going to do that is it's an act of faith as I described earlier. So our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I'm going to ask you right now, do you want to receive Christ? If you do, please right now, would you raise your hand right now? God bless you. 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 Over here. God bless you. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Amen. You can put your hands down. Lord, thank you for those who raise their hand. This act of faith. They, re- they reached out and they grabbed this gift of salvation. And the clock for them stopped. Their names are now written in the Lamb's book of life. Christ has cleansed them from all unrighteousness and they've been reconciled to the Father. They may not know completely all that has transpired, but they do know this, that they are saved. And Lord, we thank you that you are a mighty Savior. You're a wonderful God and a wonderful Father. And Lord, you began this good work in their life today and you're faithful to complete it. I pray you give them a love for your word. I pray the church would be a place they'd love to be a part of. I ask that you just do a mighty work in their life and we thank you for this miracle of salvation. The, the, the Bible says that your angels rejoice when, when we come to salvation. And so together, Lord, we too rejoice with the angels. Thank you for the miracle of salvation. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's clap for those folks who gave their heart to the Lord. Would you stand up and, and uh, we're gonna close with a doxology and, and for those of you who raised your hand, Now, I saw who you were, but I'm not going to come hunt you down. I told you I was going to be sweet. But I want to tell you something. When I gave my heart to the Lord, the first thing I did was I got a new believer's Bible, and I began to go through it. So I wanted to understand this journey that I undertook. And and Pastor Brett, he's the sweetest man on the face of the earth. He's with Joey and Sweetheart, both of these guys. They'll even talk to you with, like, mink gloves on if you come over there. But I want you to go over there. They have a new believer's Bible. And so after the service, come on over and grab one from them. Just take it home with you. Even if you didn't raise your hand, but you wanted, just come and grab a Bible from them. Amen.